Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Reagan Canope. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. Metro was created about 40 plus years ago. At the same time, the Fed said every major metropolitan area needs to have a planning organization, a metropolitan planning organization in order for the federal money for transportation to be funneled through. There are so many different reasons why folks fall into homelessness, but obviously if you don't have a home, the way back into society is to actually be able to be housed, right? It's really, really important that we talk about the totality of all of the things that are being done and not make it one against the other. All right, so we've finally done it. We've replaced Alex Titus as a co-host. Reagan, you've been promoted from friend of the pod to fill-in host. How does it feel to be an international celebrity? Well, I hear that Alex was feeling a little hoarse, so you guys decided to replace him with a rhino, and so <laughs> I'm here. I'm much too, I'm much too much of a gentleman to say anything like Alex is a complete liberal compared to me, and that he really doesn't represent conservatives across the state, but. I would never say those things, even if they were true. That is very big of you. But it is. It was a great time, and it was great to great to be on the podcast again. So yes, Alex was feeling a little under the weather, and Reagan very ably filled in for Alex in our episode with Metro Council President Lynn Peterson. This was an episode I was looking forward to for a few weeks. I actually ran into the Metro Council President at a fundraising event, and she was telling me some stories. We talk a little bit about the Washington State situation. But before we dive into content of the episode, a little bit on her background. So Metro Council President is an elected position. It's got a huge constituency. Basically, everyone in the metro area gets to vote for it. But her background goes way back at all levels of government. She was the Lake Oswego City Councilor. She was the chair of the Clackamas County Commission. She was the senior transportation policy advisor to Governor Kitzhaber. Then she actually ran the Department of Transportation in the state of Washington. She's worked at the national level in advocacy after she did that. And now she's Metro Council president. She's basically finishing up the end of her first term and is currently running for re-election to that position. And she's an expert on transportation policy. We talk a little bit about that in this episode. But Reagan, first episode as host, what did you think? What were the high points for you? I really connected with Lynn and her kind of deep Oregon political background, even though she spent some time in Washington. I connected with that kind of background because, you know, growing up in politics and having that history, I just always connect with people who have that deep history. And she has it. And she has that knowledge of all those different levels of government. I don't think that she fully convinced me necessarily. You know, the, the whole idea is that the only thing I knew about Metro really going into this before starting to read some of the research was that Republicans hate Metro and especially <laughs> Clackamas County Republicans hate Metro. And I don't know if she convinced me necessarily that it's the way forward for everything, but it exists. And I think it's super interesting, all the stuff that they're working on, all the challenges that they're facing. And I think that she is a, she didn't see, strike me as a super partisan person, even if she is a Democrat and, and is a longtime Democrat. I think that she did strike me more as that type of a, a problem solver, which is nice to see. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. That comes across strongly. Things to look for, housing and homelessness conversation, that was super helpful for me. Basically, I took like, here's what Nick Kristoff says, here's what Dan Ryan says, here's what AJ McCreary says, and she kind of translates a little bit how to think about that or her way of thinking about it, which was helpful. We talk about the urban growth boundary, which is becoming a recurring theme on the podcast that I think was also helpful for understanding. And then perhaps the most interesting part of the conversation was the people for Portland 
segment. Mm-hmm. You you get to hear Reagan riff a little bit about what he really thinks about people from Portland, which might not be what you think it will be. So stay tuned for that. The hook at the end when we talked about running for higher office at the very end, you got to stay around for that. That was super interesting. <laughs> I was fascinated by that. For sure, for sure. And then we finally close with urban rural divide and the role of metro elected officials, for which I thought she had a great answer and even some anecdotes about how it was happening. So Reagan, any closing thoughts before we jump into the episode? No, I think it's just, it's worth listening to help people understand Metro, help people understand transportation, which can be one of those very in the weeds political issues. And I think it is, it's super nonpartisan. We all have to get places and we all need to to find ways to continue to develop the places that we live in a way that's fair to people with competing interests. Because, you know, Republicans represent lots of farmers who care about the urban growth boundary. And and it's not just inner city Portlanders. So I think that these issues really, they cover everyone. And you see them on the mini level. A lot of things that she talked about, I see here in Albany or saw in Bend, they're issues everybody deals with. And sometimes it's big old long rural roads. and, And sometimes it's all of these interchanges. And we all have transportation issues. And we all have to learn how to solve them creatively and together. So it's a good episode for everyone, really. Very well said. Thank you, everyone who's listening for supporting the podcast. Check us out on YouTube. Check out the newsletter. I'll put links to both in the podcast description. And we hope you enjoy the interview with Metro Council President Lynn Peterson. Metro Council President Lynn Peterson, welcome to the podcast. Uh, How are you doing today? You know, it's been a long day, but we accomplished a lot in council today, so I'm very pleased. That's awesome. We, yeah, we give you major kudos for recording the episode at 6 p.m. on a weeknight. So points have been earned. When we were preparing for the episode, I was looking at your LinkedIn, and uh, we had spoken a couple of weeks ago and told you that, like, I was, you know, obviously I'm running for office, but I'm interested in, like, working in the behind-the-scenes roles as well. So you've worked for TriMet for a thousand friends. You've been a city councilor, county commission chair. You're now Metro president. You've worked at the state, local, federal level. My first background question for you is, of all the jobs that you've had, what has been your favorite or the best job you've ever had? We can exclude Metro Council president from that since you're in it. (laughs) But (laughs) looking back, what would you say is the top job and why? You know, I think it was actually my first job while I was still in college and coming out of college, and that was working for Wisconsin Department of Transportation. I was doing highway design and construction, and I was out on the job doing inspection in the summers and in the winters inside doing design. And I just, I was playing in the dirt, which is a happy place. And I was getting to actually, you know, put my desire to build projects to work, right? And it was a lot of fun. I got my first on the job concussion there. How did that that happen? (laughs) (laughs) That's the first. (laughs) Walking along a side of concrete truck, I took my hard hat off to run my hand through my hair and they swung the concrete truck ladder down on my head. Oh my God. So I was the only woman on a 20 mile project. We had torn up 20 miles of a state highway right past my grandfather's property. And they, yeah, I was the only, yeah, the only woman on the project bleeding from the head. It was Great. It was good. That's wild. So I want to fast forward to a job where it might have not been physical concussions, but probably similarly damaging in other ways. So after I think I'm having that I have the chronology here, right? After you were a policy advisor to Governor Kitzhaber, mm-hmm. you were hired by Governor Jay Inslee of Washington to not be an advisor, but to actually run the state uh, transportation department. Can you so 
like, I think you were there for what, two or three years? Three years, yeah. Three years. In some quirk, you were never like officially confirmed. That's correct. And in the meantime, the state Senate, I believe, was controlled by the Republican Party. And from my- By a majority caucus, actually. So oh, okay, it yeah. was two Democrats that had gone across the aisle to caucus with the Republicans. So they had a majority, but yeah. It wasn't all Republicans. Mm -hmm. So can you explain how that job ended for you? <laughs> because <laughs> I was reading the articles and it's a fascinating story. What happened at the end of your tenure in Washington? At the moment, what I knew was that the majority leader uh, in the Senate was very upset with the governor and uh, had made a decision to take one of the five of us in the cabinet that were not confirmed yet after three years. We had all been sent to the floor with a due pass recommendation by the different committees that we served with, right, in conjunction with. And they chose one of the five to not be confirmed. Uh, so I just got caught in the crossfire. And so, but it wasn't, it wasn't even about you. It, no. was, it was just like, they're going to, fascinating and very different, right, from being an elected official, right? An elected official to okay. recall an elected official, like that that's one of the trade-offs in this elected official versus like government, you know, bureaucracy side is uh, when you're an elected official, the bar to remove you is pretty high, but not so if you're, particularly in your wonky situation with the Senate confirmation. Yeah, you know, it was a, um, it was a harsh moment, but you serve at the pleasure of the governor. The governor was not, you know, in any way upset with my performance and the moderate Republicans were extremely happy with my performance. And there are like, you know, all sorts of partnerships and kudos that they gave me because what I did with that department was save them money. <laughs> which is exactly what they had been asking for in terms of reform for like 10 years up there. Like, how can you do a better job in project delivery and right-sizing projects so that they, you're doing the outcome, but you're not overbuilding. And we, we saved hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, but we had, had a $10 billion budget. Mm. And so, yeah, th there's a lot of money flowing to transportation up there. That's a whole nother, yeah, you're right. It's like a two hour topic on the difference between Washington State and Oregon State on infrastructure provision. <laughs> yeah. Switching over to Oregon for a little bit. So I live in, I've lived in Bend. I live in Medford. I currently live in Albany. We don't have what you might consider a metro. So maybe you could just give us, for the, for the listeners who don't know, for me who isn't that well versed on it, what is uh, metro, what does it do, and what are you guys working on right now? Yeah, well, Reagan, what I tell people is it's okay if you have no idea what Metro is because we're the only one of its kind in the country. So it, should, <laughs> it it's okay. Um, so Metro was created about 40 plus years ago uh, in order and is kind of born out of a good governance model, right? Um, that at the same time, the Fed said every major metropolitan area needs to have a planning organization, a metropolitan planning organization in order for the federal money for transportation to be funneled through. You're gonna to need to create a transportation plan. You're gonna to have to create priorities and you have to do that regionally so that it's not just 24 cities in the Portland metro area all coming to us with your needs and they're not prioritized. So the feds were doing that. Oregon passed the land use planning program the League of Women Voters were like, wow, we should be regionalizing waste collection. We should be regionalizing the venues. We should be, we should like take these big 
gnarly things and regionalize them because the issue has no border. So they created Metro, so we do all the venues in the region. Um, it, well, first I should say, and they created an elected body to oversee it, which is, makes us the only one in the country. Uh, our closest sister MPO um, that looks and feels like us is actually an appointed by the governor board. Um, so where, how did they go about creating it? Did they have to have all the counties come together and agree or do they do it at the state level? No, it was a vote of the people. Yeah, so we actually have our own charter and our own authority. And that state still has to provide us some of that authority um, for taxing purposes, but we have our own authority. Uh, and so we, we in, in the creation of this, uh, the city of Portland gave us the Oregon Zoo. Uh, Multnomah County gave us uh, the Expo Center. Uh, we built the convention center and then we managed on behalf of the city of Portland, the, the Keller, the Schnitzer and the Performing Arts Center. We do all the transportation and land use planning um, by default. The regional park system was created under Metro. So that is bigger than any city park system. We have 17,000 acres and trying to get to um, better habitat and cleaning up the waterways that are coming into the Willamette. Uh, we manage and regulate the waste in the region. So a lot of the things that are like under a civil engineer are in Metro. So it's too bad I couldn't say Metro is my favorite job. <laughs> uh, and, and then just recently we added to that portfolio on behalf of the region asking us to, again, big issue, right, that has no borders, the affordability of housing in the region. So we passed an affordable housing bond measure uh, that the seven housing authorities carry out. So we raise the money, do the oversight, uh, and then the homeless service support measure that was passed in 2020. Again, the money is raised through Metro and then we have the oversight to the three counties to do the work. So that, that's a perfect transition. I wanna jump into housing and homelessness. Um, and I have two, so I, I, I be, very candidly, I'm trying to learn as much as I can on this and um, I'm still trying to develop what I think. And so there, Nick Kristoff, who was a candidate for governor and is now no longer a candidate for governor, but is still writing about Oregon topics. He wrote a piece where he was basically saying, you know, when we talk about homelessness, uh, a lot of people cite substance abuse or mental health challenges. And he acknowledged that those are, those are very real things that contribute to the problem, but also said that if you look at all the other um, big cities in this country, they don't have the same kind of homelessness challenge that we have. And that was one of his reasons for um, essentially saying that the root cause of homelessness is housing supply. The lack of housing supply is what is driving the homelessness crisis in his view. Is that right? Um, is, do you agree with that take or do you think the root causes of homelessness are more complex than that? Or how do you think about where, where the problem comes from? There are so many different reasons why folks fall into homelessness, but obviously if you don't have a home, you're homeless. The way back into society is to actually be able to be housed, right? <clears throat> and, and this is what we have seen internationally is that when you take a housing first approach, you have more success with individuals and families and getting them back on the right track. So it could be that they just lost their job, right? or their rent goes up and they're evicted. And that now they're, now they're homeless. Now, sometimes you can uh, do couch surfing. A lot of families are doing couch surfing and that's pretty much 85% of the invisibility of homelessness. 15% is what we see on the street. So when, when 
when you look at the housing first strategy, which again has been adopted by every, you know almost every state, <clears throat> almost every uh, big city throughout throughout the internationally, you can then provide the services on drug addiction and mental health and workforce training and get a job because you have an address, right? Mm -hmm. So suddenly you're able to take care of these things in a stable environment. But if you try to deal with somebody's drug addiction problem and you send them back to the very trauma that caused them to have the problem, you're not making any headway. And that is true even with the shelter beds, right? It's very hard to get the services Again, if you're just temporarily in a shelter um, and you could end up there for quite a long time. Um, yeah. That is my was actually my follow-up question. Um, and I I'm at first will acknowledge that this is like incredibly complex. Um, but in the debate between Dan Ryan and AJ McCreary for Portland City Council, one of the big dividing lines between the two candidates seemed to be Dan Ryan saying we should spend more resources on shelter beds um, to basically get people off the street and get them into some some type of shelter where it seemed like AJ McCreary was saying shelters aren't really helpful in the long run and what we should be spending our resources on is building more housing under the housing first model. I think Dan, I'm, I don't, I'm putting words in their mouth, but I think he said something about like services first versus AJ was saying housing first. Um, I'm curious how you think about that dynamic of like, where, which is a more immediate need for the resources and how should we be spending them? So they're both right. <laughs> okay. okay. I mean, we're in an emergency. The reason we're in an emergency is because we don't have enough housing that's affordable and we don't have enough shelter beds that are accessible, right? So we're doing both of those in this measure. And, you know, we're all three counties are running forward as fast as they possibly can. Just in Washington County, I've got the point in time count information that just came out. Um, in 2021, there were 357 unsheltered people in households in Washington County. And in 2022, that went down by 36% to 227 in the not, and, and we have only been doing the supportive housing service measure for nine months. So we're starting to see some results, right? And part of that is that there were, there were 269 emergency shelter beds in 2021. And in 2022, there was an 84% increase to 496 emergency shelter beds. So there's a direct correlation, right? We, we get people off the street, we get them into shelter beds, want to keep them there for the, the lowest amount of time you possibly can because they're not, they're not healthy places to be for a long time solution mm. for families, right? For, for individuals, um, you want to get that down. Best practices is a month. We're way above that. The best practice for a shelter is that someone should only be there for a month before transitioning out. Interesting. But we don't, but we don't have that many places to go, right? So the supportive housing service measure is working to do both. Uh, we've got 1,600 new shelter beds in the region just in the last nine months for the totality of the region. But we can't build housing fast enough, and so we've got the vouchers within the supportive housing service that allow us to go into the private market and to uh, help pay for even building more. Um, uh, uh, apartments for families as well as individuals and, and buying up a lot of these motels in the meantime in order to get them out of a shelter and immediately into a single room if they're a single person. So it's really, really important that we talk about the totality of all of the things that are being done and not make it one against the other. I think where everybody is frustrated and I'm extremely frustrated <laughs> is 
that it is really hard to see this number of people unsheltered out on our street. There's, we all have empathy for that, but we also all want to um, feel proud about our region and that we've taken care of these individuals and that we have an economically vibrant place to live. So we need to start um, really bucking up the shelter beds as well as the affordable housing bond measure. And the affordable housing bond measure, if I just take a little side note. No, please. Right? We've, been, we've been doing yeah. it for three years. It was $652.8 million. We said we would do 3,900 units. 50% of the money has gone out the door to the seven housing authorities. We've met 75% of the goal already with that 50%. So if you do the math, <laughs> we're way ahead. And we should be closer to like almost doubling, right? By the time we finish this. But those, let's say, let's say we get to 6,000 units instead of 3,900. We're short somewhere between 45 and 55,000 units. Wow. Affordable housing in the region. Whoa. Yeah. So again, we're pedaling as fast as we can while we spin the discs in the air. And yet Washington County, after they do all of these good things, they went up from in terms of number of homeless, unsheltered and sheltered. So the couch surfing, right? They went up from 17, 716 to eight, 808. So they had an increase in homeless. And that's because of the economics of what we're facing right now, right? With not enough affordable housing and our median, median wages being too low. So right now in this region, you need to earn $26 an hour for a one bedroom apartment anywhere in the region. So when we say, yay, we got to $15 on minimum wage, yes, <laughs> yes, and <laughs> there's a lot more that needs to be done. Um, so that's why I think moving forward as Metro, not only are we working as hard as we can to uh, help the counties move as fast as they can to shelter people and to make sure people don't fall into homelessness, because 17,000 people were kept out of homelessness with state, federal, and uh, regional money just in the last nine months. So 17,000. So if we didn't have that money, right? The It'd be even worse. <laughs> this could be way worse. And so I think that's the, that's the frustrating part is that, yes, progress is being made. You don't see it on the street because more people are falling into homelessness and we can't we can't get above that quite yet. And, and I, I, I'm optimistic that we can. We just need a little bit more time because these systems are nine months in and they're just being set up. So that, and I think you probably covered a lot about what was in your state of the state uh, or state of the, of the Metro um, speech. Uh, but cause you have, we have this quote here uh, that I think is directly from your speech. It says June 30th this year, we expect the counties who implement this work to add 900 new round year shelter beds, um, in addition to 2,200 shelter beds in the region to stabilize 2,500 people. So you guys are already meeting and exceeding those goals, it sounds like. We're on track. Yeah. The, the region is completely on track to do that. Um, you know, there might be some plus or minus there uh, with Clackamas County. They aren't moving as fast. And let me just say um, the hardest part about the year-round shelter beds or safe park, safe camps, or emergency stand-ups is that as you've probably seen in the press, the minute you try and cite one, nobody wants it in their backyard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And so that's the, that's the issue with the proposed ballot measure. 75% of all of these monies going towards just shelter beds, we might never get there because nobody wants it in their backyard. I'm trying to process what to do with that piece of information because Metro passed this like, you know, massive, massive housing bond. And the scope of the bond wasn't nearly large enough to address that challenge. So does this mean that that if we're going to solve this, it will require a massive, massive state intervention where the state is going to spend a bunch more money? Is it the federal government we're waiting for? Like, you know, Metro clearly isn't going to be the place that's going to solve this problem by itself. So what is the next step to build the scope of the solution? Yeah, there's two things. I mean, how did we get here? Right. There's two, there are two reasons why we, why we get to this point. Um, And it's not just an Oregon problem, right? This is happening all across the West coast. It's happening all across the entire country in different, in different ways. But um, we are 40 years into severe cuts at the federal level in, in housing, right? We used to have a housing program and now it's, it's almost nothing. The state didn't step up into that in almost any of these states, really nobody stepped into the space. And so now we're left with this literal problem in our backyard and the region stepped up and said, we're gonna have to solve this. We're gonna have to take the first step forward to show it can be done. So I, I, I would say that that's the first thing, 40 years of disinvestment at the federal level that, that cascades down into the state level. The second is how, how we as individual jurisdictions have increased the cost and time to get development down on the ground, right? And so if we could reduce the permitting time and fees for affordable housing at the local level, either waive or deal with system development charges differently, we could see a quicker implementation on the private side to get at that that number because we should never think that the public side should cover that entirety of that deficit. Mm -hmm. But yes, it's a combination of both things. It's it's very costly to develop um, anywhere within the anywhere within the area. And it's not because of the urban growth boundary, it's because of time and, and costs to, for the developer on the development side. So you just transitioned for us. Uh, the next question was the UGB. Um, and you so you've, you foreshadowed a little bit. Um, proponents of the urban growth boundary say that it preserves our natural spaces, it preserves farmland, um, it helps keep Oregon's identity intact. Um, detractors say that it makes costs go up because it, it artificially restricts the amount of land available to develop um, and therefore makes it more expensive to develop what we do have. Um, and that's on housing, but then in terms of industry, some folks have said one of the driving factors of Intel choosing Ohio instead of Oregon was, oh, we've got this urban growth boundary that you know within our, within our land use system, there wasn't even a, a plot of land large enough. Um, and you know, so there's different takes on that. Metro, I think, is like the the chief land use body of the metro region. Um, so I guess for housing, but also more broadly, how do you think about the politics of the UGB? And when you're making a decision about growth or restriction, or uh, how do you think about the trade offs of that kind of a decision? This is this will be uh, my first, well, 
can't say that. It'll be my first full urban growth boundary expansion uh, decision within right, the context of this position, my first term. Um, we're doing a mid-cycle review right now. Tigard has requested a small um, urban growth boundary expansion. I won't go into why there's a mid-cycle review for the first time ever. Um, it was a part of the grand bargain that was uh, done at the state level to uh, set our urban and rural reserves. But, uh, you know, Tigard has done a great job um, and in preparing for its, its growth and thinking about affordable housing and creating complete communities. We have um, an opportunity here to have a, a much larger discussion than just an urban growth boundary expansion. It's how, what are we doing inside our urban growth boundary? Um, the last several urban growth boundary expansions haven't been fully utilized yet because it's- is that, really What does that mean? So the land that was brought into the urban growth boundary has not been developed fully um, large tracts of it. One, you can point to Damascus, that was never going to happen. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. But in others, it's, it's the cost to develop. Um, Bethany has taken way longer to develop than originally uh, thought because it is so expensive to develop the transportation, the water, the sewer infrastructure. It's, it's off the charts. And so it has taken a very long time for a developer to be able to find a financing mechanism, right? To be able to get to that place, to be able to go forward. So we have to figure out um, both on the residential and on the employment lands, what is it gonna take to fully utilize the land inside because we don't have enough money to do that as well as anything that we would bring in. And I think this is a really, really great conversation um, on the on the Intel uh, conversation or uh, issue, a lot of people said we lost out. Yeah. I would contend we were not even on the playing field to be able to lose out. Mm -hmm. we, were, we weren't even part of a competition. If you were to do a side-by-side -side comparison of state to state to state, Arizona, Michigan, where they went and other states, it's not the amount of land that they had. It was the tax incentives. It was the workforce development training programs, mm. right? It was, the, it was the investments that they were willing to make on transportation. Now, sometimes this goes really well, like the Intel locations in Arizona, and, but my home state of Wisconsin under Scott Walker put two and a half billion dollars of investment into a large tract of land that's a thousand acre plus just at the, Chicago, at the Illinois border, and it went very wrong with Foxconn. 14,000 14, new jobs were promised and only 1,000 showed up. Interesting. So I, we have a conversation that we really need to have as a state of what are we trying to do? And what we do really well is we grow our own industry really well. We need to really think about how we're growing them. What are their needs, right? What is it that we do well? And um, Greater Portland Inc. has a really great... A rundown of what it is, where are industries that we have the ability to grow, right? Biotech, um, silicon manufacturing, uh, outdoor apparel and shoes. We know these things are the things that we do really well. Then the question is, what else do we need to attract into those as well, right? Um, what are their needs? And 
can we meet those needs inside the urban growth boundary or anywhere in the state? Because they may not even need to come to the state. I mean, down your way, Regan, a thousand acres with that kind of jobs would be very welcome, right? Yeah, huge. We may not need that. We need 200, 500 acre. We have mm -hmm. that. We have those sites, but we have no money to make them ready. And really what that, the bottom line to all of this conversation that I just went through is that our land readiness sucks. <laughs> we, we just are not competitive, whether it's residential or whether it's employment. We are not uh, making land ready. Before Reagan goes to a follow-up, um, can yeah. you just, does land readiness basically means like infrastructure ready to go, like water, sewer, electricity, et cetera, or is it more complicated than that? It's that, and, and for employment lands, it's the tax incentives, <laughs> it's the agglomeration of land. So there might be land there, but it's in like 20 acre parcels or 40 acre parcels, and it needs to be in a hundred acre parcel or 150 acre. We don't have that ability all across the region. Hillsborough has a bit of that because they have had the property tax base, they have had the, the tools in place, but Gresham does not, Clackamas mm -hmm. County does not. Um, so we have a, a smattering of small tools, but we don't have a full program that really says we're gonna invest in our major metropolitan areas and get them ready. Helpful. So, and I'm kind of thinking about what you said about affordable housing being difficult because SDCs are high, because approval, the approval processes and the paperwork take a long time. Isn't that something that we just need to streamline across the board for everybody, not just affordable housing, but just for development in general, right? Because it seems like that's where, that's a huge pain point. SDCs, I, my dad is not just to say center, but he also deals with the construction building trades and they talk about the high SDCs and how you can go to, and it's not comparable, obviously, but you can go to Texas and Mississippi and your SDCs are $10,000. And here your SDCs for a single property could be, you know, 10 to, you know, a hundred times that maybe, or, or more up to 50 to a hundred thousand dollars. Right. So it seems like that's like, that's a huge pain point for everybody. Right. Yeah. So, um, we get into tax and tax collection now and the system of, of the broken system within the state of Oregon, right? And, and what you're seeing play out in system development charges is the fact that uh, cities are trying to pay for their infrastructure without a sales tax, without a gas tax that is shared in a way with the state that allows them to actually grow right? Because they don't even have enough money to pave the streets that they have, let alone grow anything. So they start putting, right, all of this on the new growth to pay for the new intersection, right, to pay for the new park, to pay for the new sewer and water expansion. So this building that I'm in is our accessory dwelling unit. My husband and I live here and my parents live in the main house. <laughs> don't ask how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> but when we, when we built this, um, just three and a half years ago in the city of Lake Oswego, Mayor Buck was on city council at the time. And I was constantly calling him. I'm like, did you know <laughs> the SDCs for this place for $25,000? For you know, you. The SDCs for a 10,000 square foot home on the lake are $25,000. I'm like, what? <laughs> what is the answer? Why? It was a new home. You're adding, yeah. yeah, you're adding a, one sink 
well, two sinks, one bathtub, one toilet, right? There's your, wa your, your water and sewer charge. Um, so it, <laughs> we're gonna, again, if you look to other states and how they help their cities grow and fund these things, right? Um, they don't put them in this position where you, you put it all on the, on the new growth. Um, and it, it, it's a shared expense to be able to upgrade a, a water facility. It's a shared expense to upgrade a mm -hmm. sewer facility. It's, so it's, it's, a little, it's a little off and that's, that's why we have this outcome. So we, you know, when we say, but I don't, I don't think that you're, oh, sorry. I'm no, sorry. No, I don't no. think that your ADU experience is, is unique though, not even Oregon or even in the country. I'd, I had done a little bit of reading um, about accessory dwelling units and there's just a lot of, especially the West, but a lot of the United States has, has very hostile ADU policy. And if you had competitive and much more low cost accessory dwelling, unit, it would it would, it's a relief valve. And like when we're talking about this, like whole emergency of housing and not, like you said, a one solution, it's like everything. We got to pull all of the levers, right? right. Units are definitely one of those levers that are yeah. important. Now what I'll say on the positive side of all this, the city of Portland recognized that they needed to bring down system development charges and make sure that the permitting, you know, time and costs for an ADU was like non-existent, right? They recognize that. So They've done a great job. THPRD, Tallinn Hills Park and Recreation District, they recognize that their system development charges on affordable housing was hurting the availability of getting affordable housing. So they, I'm not sure if they waived it or if they allowed for it to be included in, in the basically the loan, right? Which is, if you have to pay it up front, mm -hmm. you're essentially taking your down away. Yep. And so, you know, just finding different finance mechanisms. But yeah, we, we, we rely on too many times in the state on uh, one thing to fund everything. And then it gets overused and we revolt. <laughs> we'll talk about so kind of another time, but yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> yes. Um, so you, you kind of touched on the, the politics of, of funding things and our priorities for um, policy areas. And one of the other things that you, that you had in your um, state of Metro speech was uh, you said that People for Portland is a dark money group that does not have to reveal its funders and has flooded our airwaves, increases cynicism and distrust in government. Uh, it undermines what we are doing. So I guess my question for you, and you can kind of go whichever direction you feel like on that, is what kind of effect do you think People for Portland is having? Do you think it's the effect they're trying to have? And is it impacting you and other elected officials in the region? Yeah, it the messaging is fanning the flame of distrust in our democracy to get anything done. And those airwaves, once taken, have no room for the actual facts that I gave you. And to actually have a discourse about it in a rational way and allow for people who are problem solvers to come to the table and have, have a place right now it is very difficult. We've had our dashboard out for a very long time. It's showing the progress, um, but because of that visibility problem, right? That that mm -hmm. that very thing that we are all frustrated about. It's it's capitalizing on how people are upset. It's capitalizing on that, and it's not providing a solution. It's it's creating turmoil and. Mm -hmm. 
I, I am not one that wants to be part of the soap opera of the drama of, of all this. I, I want to solve the problem. And I want to, I want to have the space to have the conversation so that everything is on the table because we are making it. It is make, like people for Portland conversation is us versus them. Homeless shelter versus housing. No, it's, it has to be everything. And if we, if, if you look, the, the Multnomah County had started on one track and then bumped up their homeless shelter provision higher and went forward faster on that, understanding that they needed to get that up and running, even though they needed to also get by the hotels and the motels. And right, so they, they actually started moving much faster um, with this, as you delve more into the problem and you figure it out, you start to be able to move. But if you aren't allowing your government to learn, right, then, then we, we end up with this trust issue. And I don't know how, how we get out of this problem if we're just batting people around like a cat playing with a ball, right? Um, we need a solid, steady approach to this. And this housing first methodology, while it says housing, it, it, it's everything, right? It's mental health, it's physical health, it, it's uh, drug addiction and it's workforce training. It is all, we are taking care of the individual. And if the individual needs to go to a shelter first before they trust government, so we can make that happen. We need to have it all on the table. Yeah, and I think um, for people who aren't as informed, People for Portland is kind of like a, a nonprofit organization. Um, they can take in dollars. They don't have to really do a lot of reporting about where the dollars come from, how they're spending them, right? But they do get to, they can, they can purchase advertising just like anyone else. And they've been airing ads basically to put pressure on um, elected leaders to take action on the homelessness issue, right? And, and some other um, key issues that they think are basically affecting the livability of Portland. And the two kind of, people that are heading it up are Dan Levy, who's a now former Republican consultant. He left the Republican Party a couple of years ago because of Donald Trump. And then Kevin Looper, who's kind of a moderate Democrat. Um, and they're basically saying that, like, look, they that implication, you don't have to respond to this, Lynn. This is just me kind of walking through what I'm kind of seeing here, not being someone who lives in Portland, um, but knowing some of the players is they're kind of say, basically saying, look, the elected there's there's basically you know except for clackamas county there's no republican representation in government really in the portland region and that most of the the inner core portland is represented by democrats and increasingly far left democrats and they're concerned that basically they don't have the right priorities to make portland livable i think right and that's kind of what they're doing is they're trying to leverage negative response to the elected officials to get them to, to act. Now, personally, I kind of think, and this Ben may shock you, I think <laughs> that as a consultant, it's pretty easy for me to peg people for Portland as one of those projects, which is really good for consultants because you can give your donors, you can donors can give you money and you can give them results in terms of how much advertising we bought, how many people saw it, how many people reacted to all this stuff. You can basically show them progress without showing them any actual policy progress, right? And so it's great for consultants, but ultimately I think it's really challenging to see if it's going to have an effect, mostly because I think that if none of these elected leaders actually face significant challenges in their elections, they don't actually have to respond to people for Portland. They continue doing whatever they want, whether it's good or bad policy, right? You can't shame 
I, my personal thing is you can't shame someone who is shameless, right? Like if they don't have, if there's no lever for the pull for them to feel the shame or to lose their election, you don't actually have like an issue to deal with. You can just air advertising that keeps people angry. Right. So I don't, you don't need to respond to that, but that's just kind of my view of people from Portland. That was, that was fascinating. Um, what, what, what I struggle with is like, you know, we, we had Mingus maps on and I think he is one person who, like people for Portland has. So I don't actually understand what they're trying to do. Um, and like, cause they're not, they can't endorse candidates. Right. Like, I don't think that they're, um, cause they're, no, a, cause then they, they go into a different category of nonprofit and they can't do all the same things that they do, they're doing now and they can't keep all their donors as private. So right now it's just mostly like black and white photos of Ted Wheeler and Deb Kafori and Lynn Peterson. <laughs> and like, you yep. know. That's um, exactly right. Which actually is a, a good transition to, um, I did want to ask you about Portland a little bit. Um, so I think part of what's driving people for Portland is a, per, a perception of dysfunction, particularly at the city commission level. Um, and part of that, I think, perception of dysfunction comes from the form of government that Portland operates in. One thing that seems to be like consensus in Portland is like the Portland form of government is bad and it hasn't changed. Yeah. Um, you, I was hoping we were going to get to break this on our podcast, but somebody else asked you the right, I think Willamette Week actually broke the story first. You had an interesting idea where you were basically like, Ted Wheeler could solve this right now if he wanted to. Can you walk us through, if you were in, if you were the mayor of Portland right now, what would you be doing to, sh to really rapidly make structural changes? The mayor of Portland has the authority to assign commissions, right? So the commissioner form of government is that the mayor assigns departments to commissioners. And it's not just oversight, it's actual running of the department, right? This, this, this was created in the South, this form of government. It was a good governance model at the time. We are one of two cities that have it left because it was shown to be so corrupt and so discriminatory towards BIPOC communities and low-income people. So, and it makes it very dysfunctional, right? Because now you're not, as a commissioner, you're not representing people, you're representing departments. Yeah, when, when we had Novik on, he was talking about the, in, the incentives for commissioners are like fighting for your own budgets that you're overseeing versus like a, a broader strategy. Right. And you can't coordinate and overlap um, missions between the departments so that you're achieving a bigger deal, which is how the rest of all the cities in Oregon work, right? Is you have one city manager, department heads, but they're all like going towards the same vision of the city council. So in this case, the mayor has that authority to assign or not assign commission assignments. I believe he should not assign himself commission assignments, nor should he assign anybody else in an emergency order, take it all away, get an interim city manager, and just call it what it is, it's an emergency, until there is a new charter. And all of the charter reform conversations revolve around a new city administrator, city manager form of government. Um, and you know they're debating strong mayor, weak mayor, or how many people should be on council districts, rank order, blah, 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 right? That, that's all fine, but all of them say city manager, city administrator. Mm -hmm. So it, I, I suggested this uh, prior to the mayor uh, taking office, suggested it every year since. <laughs> um, and it's just at the point where if we don't do something quickly to resolve 
some of this dysfunction, um, it just makes everything that much harder to well, this, and, and the only thing preventing him from doing that, basically, I think, Ben, and you can respond to this, Ben, if you want, but is basically it's it's practice of the whole entire history of the city of Portland that in the interim time, all of his counselors would get super upset. <laughs> but I would say in, in my looking at it, him going to the city of Portland was supposed to be the launch pad for him running for governor. His political career is now over. So I think honestly, he has, he doesn't need capital. He should just do it because it does seem like it would make a lot of sense for him to do it. But maybe you have a different view on that, Ben, but I, I, no. I think that he well, totally should. It makes sense. Uh, so I, 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 I think I agree with most of that. I think it's an interesting question whether his political career is over. Probably. Um, but uh, I think so, but it in, may not be, you never know. In politics, there's many opportunities for second chances. Um, but what strikes me about uh, Lynn, your idea is like, if ever there was a moment, <laughs> it is this moment. He's doing, he's already doing a bunch of emergency orders as mayor. He's already doing that. And like, to your point, the, the, I forget what it's called, but they have a commission or a committee who's like drafting this new proposal that came out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they just came out with it. So, and I think every commissioner is supporting it or will support it. Like no one's out there saying we shouldn't do this. Um, so Reagan, to your point, like if the commissioners are mad, you basically be like, this is what the people want. This is the model you say you want. We need to move to this now to regain some functionality in our form of government. It seems like there's a moment. I just don't know how you hold it as a commissioner in in your head when you all of them have run to say we need to get rid of this but yet they've taken their assignments well and they're essentially all ceos of like three to four different large departments like it's a very it would be a very it sounds like a horrible job really (laughs) it doesn't sound like any fun at all uh reagan you should transition us to transportation so we have some time for a couple politics questions okay so um there's two pretty large um transportation projects that are kind of in, uh, that are at different stages of progress. One probably a little further down is the I-5 Rose Quarter Improvement Project. And there's been a lot of, uh, you know, the governor has made some announcements and some decisions about that. And then there's some there's some outcry. Um, and then there's the I-5 bridge replacement slash Columbia River Crossing kind of um, if don't say that we don't say CRC. Oh, I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> sorry. No, not real. Um, uh, so what is the status of those two projects and from the Metro perspective, and then you can all give more overview to if it's outside of Metro scope. Yeah, I'll give a quick update, but just, uh, for, uh, the Metro response, just know that every, every time we're weighing in, we're weighing in with a racial equity lens and a climate change lens. So the majority, the vast majority of our council want these projects to move forward. We're just trying to make sure that the projects aren't for just the traveling public going through the region, that they actually have some sort of positive uh, benefit to the region. And so that's usually where we're weighing in Um, and and how to balance those two things out is really hard, right? (laughs) Um, So the, the Rose Quarter project, I am, extremely happy and then the council is extremely happy of where we are right now uh, with that project. Uh, when it started, uh, it was just to add an, au- an auxiliary lane so that merging traffic had a place to come and go safely um, from I-84 all the way to 405, right? Because you've got three highways coming together and in any other state, in any other state, 
the State Department of Transportation would say, well, there's three lanes on I-84, there's three lanes on I-5, there's three lanes on 405. We need like nine to 10, 12 lanes, right? Between these things so we can balance out all the lanes and all the movements and nobody ever experiences any kind of delay. But in this case, ODOT thought that they were doing the right thing. We'll just add an aux lane so that we can reduce the number of fender benders. <laughs> and if we reduce the number of fender benders then we're reducing GHG emissions because people aren't delayed, it's all gonna be good. Well, what they didn't realize or didn't quite understand because they didn't talk to the community is that they were proposing a lid on top of this. And a lid is just a really long bridge, right? That almost becomes a tunnel so that they could reconstruct the, the at-grade uh, uh, street system within the city of Portland. And they thought they were doing this thing, but they didn't talk to anybody. In the meantime, you have this overlay of Albina Vision who is trying to bring the black community and intergenerational wealth back into this part of the lower Albina. The, they, the two weren't gonna function together in any way, shape or form. There was no way. So if you can imagine the Moda Center, Okay, in your mind's eye. And you're down by the light rail station to the south. Yeah. And there are all of these roads and light rail and streetcar, and they're all crisscrossing. And you have all these dead spaces of, that are planted green with a couple of trees in them. Right. And you don't feel safe. You just don't feel safe walking down there. That's what they wanted to recreate on the north side. <laughs> so they essentially were saying, we're going to crisscross all these roads, and then we're going to give you these parks. Look at these little teeny tiny parks. <laughs> And the, and the people who live there were like, you're not doing that. <laughs> so that doesn't actually spur economic development. That doesn't have um, any kind of um, uh, business on the street level of, you know, uh, buildings. It doesn't have, it doesn't promote any kind of community cohesiveness. It doesn't seem safe. So can we rethink that? And that's really where we came down is hybrid three, which is, a lot of time and energy, and I was the only elected sitting at the table at one point because everybody else left. <laughs> like, let the, let the planners <laughs> handle this, we're out of here. <laughs> um, hybrid three, the governor came in, she helped shepherd a consensus, hybrid three, we're set. Um, ODOT is now moving forward with an environmental assessment on that, uh, on that option. It's, it's delayed the project a little bit uh, to get to this point, but it's gonna be a much better project and we will be eligible for more money at the federal level because we have consensus at the regional level. Um, and it's an exciting project to go sell. So it's a it, good story. I mean, a bumpy sausage making awfulness in the meantime, but a good story. Uh, hopefully I-5 Bridge is on the same track. I was gonna uh, say, now give us the bad news. <laughs> no, the bad good news. Luck. <laughs> no, we're, it's all good news. Um, so I-5 Bridge, I am so optimistic about this one. Um, you know, this is the second time at it. It seems like the, the, the project that just, you know, for my entire career, I can't get away from it. I, oh, I when you were Kitzhaber's transportation advisor. Oh, was I was chair of Clackamas County. It was an issue because tolling just I-5 puts, uh, diverts all this traffic to I-205. So I was mm -hmm. trying to defend my industrial districts, right, as chair of Clackamas County. And then, um, yeah, and then as 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 uh, senior policy advisor to, to Governor Kissaber, and then I, you know, worked on the project. It was one of my three mega projects at Washington State, and I had to close down the project and lay off a hundred people when the four state senators decided that they weren't going to fund the project again. 
because they didn't want tolls and they didn't want light rail. He didn't want the Portland region telling them what to do is, you know, their, their response was to shut the project down. Mm -hmm. So here we are in this, this iteration. And what I love about it is that there's recognition on both sides of the river that we, we want the best for both sides of the river, but we aren't there to tell each other what to do, but we are there to understand and, and bring the best to the table. So we're not looking for the perfect solution for either side of the river. We're looking for the best that we can get. And um, I am very pleased with the progress that Vancouver is making in terms of how, how they're viewing the project. They're, they're having some really hard conversations and they're coming to consensus. So, and I think our side of the river is very close as well. Um, not that decisions have been made, but as we start to winnow things down, it becomes clearer that there is a consensus something there. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Now, the hard one was actually I-205 today um, because that is the first toll project that the state will have since we, um, since, the Oregon Trail came across, <laughs> right? Literally, that was a toll road. Um, and then some of the bridges were tolled, right? Um, Governor Roberts remembers uh, as, as a young child being lifted and, and over her, her parents to put uh, the coin in to pay for the original bridge on I-5. Okay. Um, yeah. Wow. So we've had, we've had tolls, but this is the first modern, and it's the first one of an entire system that we're building, right? And it's in Clackamas County on, on Abernathy for the Abernathy Bridge. And this is the hardest moment of starting up a tolling congestion pricing program is that first one. And nobody wants to be the first one. Nobody wants to be the first one. And it's really hard because once you set that toll, there's gonna be diversion into the neighborhoods. And we don't know what ODOT is committed to yet in mm. order to mitigate that diversion impact. Hmm. So there's there's a lot going on there right now, a lot of feelings, and they're all valid. Um, and we're sorting through that to try to get to the best way to start making decisions together with the state. Reagan, were you going to say something? I was. It was definitely that uh, all of the Republican campaigns in that area are definitely running against tolling right now. And I think that that project is probably why it had. It, I'm sure that has impact in the campaigns and in, in this next election. Um, well, that's, that's a good transition. So we do have two politics questions that we're hoping to squeeze in. If you have to jump, it's totally okay. Um, so the first one, and this is, this is a question I've actually been very interested to ask you. So in, I didn't know that in 2010, you considered running for governor briefly um, before Kitzhaber um, announced. Um, but then in 2022, I don't know whether you were considering it or other people were considering it on your behalf, but your name was speculated um, several times in 2022. Um, I guess my two questions are, how close did you come in 22 to announcing? And, you know, we've talked to, I think, 187 gubernatorial candidates on the Republican side so far. We've talked to Tobias <laughs> um, on the Democratic side. So we've talked to the people who've gotten there. But I'm curious what the process is like for someone who who is thinking about it but decides not to. Um, and what what the process was for you? So I have a tattoo okay. on my back. Okay. That is that is the state motto, and that's alias 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 Velop Propris. She flies and with her own wings. So a lot of folks think that that Latin phrase "she flies with her own wings" translates into a female she, but what they actually meant when they wrote that was local government. Local it's, government. 
local control. That's why Oregon Oregonians are so local control oriented. <laughs> and I'm, so I am a local uh, government girl. I mean, I've worked at every single level, right? And where I, it's just like when I said, my best job was on the ground in the dirt, right? I wanna be on the ground building the project, making it happen. It's, it's harder when you're at the state level to see and feel what happens on the ground with what you're doing. Um, and, and so I like to roll in the mud down here with these kinds of things. And I think we just need steady leadership down here, uh, not down here, but in this region right now. Um, and that's what I hope I'm providing for everybody is that ability to say, we are all in this together, right? Let's problem solve through. I hear what you're saying there. I mean, I hope that everything you said is like, it's not one thing or another. It's everything has to be on the table at this point, right? So it's not, it's not one person's perception of, of life and their lived experience is wrong to me. Is that there's a seed, a kernel of something in there. And that's what we need right now is for people who are saying, yeah, I hear you. I'm going to help you. Might not get you to 100%. Maybe it's just 80%. That's going to have to be okay because otherwise nothing gets done. And that's where we've been for too long. It's just nothing getting done. So I'm, I'm just looking for the 80%. And that is great because perfection is, right, the enemy of the good. Absolutely. Uh, speaking of perfection, uh, in 60 seconds, can you solve the uh, urban-rural divide for us? <laughs> oh. Wait, let me frame that properly. My, okay, sorry. The, the question it's... the question is basically like, we're all familiar with the urban-rural divide. Um, but to your point, you're a local elected official representing Portland. So mm. do you see a responsibility for people in your role, people at the city of Portland, people in the metro county government, to have an actual responsibility in addressing the urban-rural divide? Or is that somebody else's problem? Oh, it's all of our issue, as far as I'm concerned. Um, we, this region is dependent on the rest of the state. And they are dependent on us for different reasons. I mean, we coexist. During uh, the pandemic, I did my, my version of trying to do a podcast um and you, need to check, was, you should plug it at the end of the show <laughs> no no no. I, got, I just did it during the pandemic i was trying to uh, bring people to the table from outside the region as well as inside the region how are you doing what's going on how can this region help you so uh i'm trying to remember the, the name of the the tulip festival folks just down the valley here um they they had figured out how to deliver um the tulips to people um, and, and to senior homes, right? In order to bring their, um, their joy because they couldn't have the festival. So they were trying to bring joy to other people. It was just a really great Iversons, the Iversons. I'm mm. um, trying to bring a lot of joy to other people. And then a, a rancher that Governor Kitzhaber introduced me to um, out in Eastern Oregon, how some of their difficulties, right? They don't have a meat processing plant out there. And so a lot of the conversation was like, you know how you can help us? Help us get a meat processing plan. I'm like, okay. So, <laughs> yeah. so we, we had a lot of conversations about how I could help do that. And that's, it's, it's not, it's a side conversation. It's a side work. It's not something that I asked Metro staff to work on, right? 
we, I'm not going to ask somebody from the venues to help me get, you know, good policy at the state for a meat processing plant. But if I can lend my voice to a letter, if I can lend my voice to a, you know, testimony, then yes, then, then that's, that's worth my time and effort. But I think, I think, I, I never felt like this was an issue in Wisconsin because we're so interdependent on each other, the farmers and right. It's such an agricultural based um, industry. I, the, the the lack in the 80s when the resources for timber fishing went out right we 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 never helped those communities transition i saw that in appalachia when i was working at the national level hmm. they are in need of some basic infrastructure that would help them create small businesses they are in need of better education they're in need and and i don't think we're quite listening to all of those needs hmm. It, again, it there's what people say, but if you if you really like what you guys do, it, do it so well. It's like get down to the actual conversation. What is the nugget of the problem? Not the emotion, not the oh those damn you know Portlanders or that <laughs> right. There's um, a little of that, but we try to keep it low. Just, <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean from others from around the state, right? Or or. Folks here, they just don't understand. They just don't understand. Actually, we're having the same problem. Affordable housing is a problem across the state, yep. right? The lack of workforce training is a problem across the state, but we're not listening to what the actual community needs are and, and allowing for the flexibility to um, get to those needs as, as clearly as we should. So I, I, think, I think, yes, we, we need to be part of the solution, um, but it needs to be, like we need to figure out what what is that two way street? We need the state to help with tax incentives to bring jobs here, but we need to help them, right? Figure out how to get programs that work for them, not just for us. That's a that's a great place to leave it. Um, Metro President Lynn Peterson, thank you for coming on the podcast. Before we go, we didn't mention it, but I believe you're in the middle of a reelection campaign. Um, yeah. So if folks want to support you or they want to learn more about you or get in touch with you, what's the best place um, for them to, to do that? ElectLynnPeterson.com. Thank Perfect. you for asking. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for coming on and we hope to talk to you again soon. That'd be fun. Transportation. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. Thanks, guys. You're great. <laughs>